This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to Quarantiniacs. Following the example of countries with their heads screwed on properly, we've placed the podcast in isolation. And I'm not in the pub with Stanley Johnson. I'm Ros Taylor, and this week we're all recording the podcast from different locations for the first time. So apologies if it occasionally sounds like some of us are at the back of the cupboard eating the custard creams that were supposed to last until May. But whatever happens, Brexit is going ahead. Dominic Raab says it's the first time he's had a chance to chat properly to Cuba, and that's a sign of the brave new post-Brexit world. <laughs> and David Davis reassured us the unfortunate COVID-19 events will mean that cross-border traffic will be depressed and customs will be more than able to handle the traffic. Silver lining, though, David. <laughs> but is this bravado? And are we heading for an extension? We'll be discussing that and plenty more with a few of our regulars through the magic of the internet. Naomi Smith is CEO of Best for Britain, who shared a list of top 10 tips for working from home to its staff last week. Naomi, what sort of things did you suggest? Um, well, we, we did a little dress rehearsal actually a few weeks ago to make sure that if uh, this did happen and of course it now has that we could all continue to work um, and a big part of that for me was making sure I was looking after the team's mental health in particular um, and partly because of the housing crisis um, lots of staff rent in houses of multiple occupancy and there is no shared um, uh, communal area um, they have their bedrooms and what had originally been a lounge will have been converted into a bedroom. And so I was very worried about them maybe being cooped up in their bedrooms, um, having to work there and sleep there and everything. So, you know, just giving them advice about making sure that you do get up in the morning on time, that you treat it as a normal working day, having a shower, maybe using what was your commuting time to go for a walk or a run, um, you know, getting dressed so that you've got something to get undressed from when you go back into your pajamas at the end of the day because otherwise what are you going to do get dressed into a suit after being sat in your your casuals all day um and to just make sure that you're you're really keeping up with the comms and that I think is so vital at the moment so the team are having we have we have twice a day meetings uh, on video conference but then in between those I'm really encouraging them all to have bilateral chats just as they would um at the water cooler in a normal office environment that sounds very sensible. Have you got any tips for dealing with a very hyperactive seven-year-old? Uh, oh no, I mean, uh, I am auntie to a lot, of, a lot of nieces and nephews of similar age. Um, at Maths on Toast, I'll give that charity a shout out. Um, they have produced a lot of really fun activities for parents um, who are now having to homeschool maths um, that are actually quite fun things to do. So maybe check out the Maths on Toast website good idea. Friend of the show, Ahir Shah, joked the other day that we'll just be minding our own business and Robert Peston will say, I've heard they're going to brick up your nan, no further questions. How big of a problem is it that major government strategy is being released to select friendly journalists? 
Um, and look, there can be no denying that the government has had some problems uh, communicating its message. Um, but I think that the daily conference that, that um, Boris and his two amigos um, are now having will be useful to make sure that people receive the correct um, information, regularly updated, etc. Um, and we just need to ensure that they've got real clarity of message so people act correctly and, and don't end up you know, endangering people inadvertently. Yeah. We are delighted to welcome back Alexandreou, if only in a virtual context. I know. I, He's been I away. am delighted to be welcomed. <laughs> He's been away in Greece for the last few months, and now he's going to be there for the foreseeable future as all European flights are cancelled. Alex, welcome back virtually. Thank you. How are you? And how is Mykonos? Because we missed you a lot. I miss you a lot too. I'm going out of my frigging mind here. Um, it's it's beautiful, but there's an underlying threat, isn't there? So it's uh, it's it's terrible. I'm trying to shelter mum from the outside world. So we have a system with my sister where she does all the shopping and then leaves it outside my door. And then I take it in and wash it and deliver it to mum downstairs so that she comes into no direct contact with the outside world. But it's terrifying. Yeah. Greece has been no stranger to crises in the last decade or so, has it? Yeah. What's, what's the mood like generally? Have you got a sense of that? I've got a sense of it, obviously. I don't have a point of reference as to whether it's better or worse than it is in the UK, because I only see what I see on social media, if that makes uh, sense. So um, I see plenty of photographs of empty supermarket shelves, but then my other half goes to our local supermarket and reports that there's very few shortages. So I don't know the extent to which people tend to report only the negative. Um, I'll tell you one funny, very funny thing that I saw. Someone tried to do the whole singing from balconies thing. Um, and it was caught on video. So they stepped out on their balcony and started singing a, a ballad. And within 10 seconds, someone shouted, shut up, you moron. <laughs> See, I was just imagining like, like Mamma Mia, basically. I had that image in my mind. And then you shattered that totally. <laughs> yeah, well, it's like Mamma Mia with a deadly virus. So, you know, 28 days Mia or something. <laughs> Some, some listeners won't have any choice but to self-isolate with their elderly relatives. Do you have any advice for them? Yes, I have loads of advice for them. Um, and the you have to do like a CSI chain of evidence thing. So that's what you, you have to think of it like that. You have to think of things coming from the outside and people coming from the outside as a threat that needs to be neutralized, if that makes sense. So I've got, um, a, I've got a little tip. Um, yeah, people go on. who are um, maybe not with elderly relatives, but are very conscious of checking in with them more regularly. And it's not that you should sort of, you know, make a mental note that you're going to call your grandparents or your parents or, or whoever it is. It's to let them know that you're going to be calling because a huge part of the fun for them is the anticipation of that call. 
Um, so um, it gives them a, a something to look forward to. They know, oh, you know, Naomi's going to be ringing me at 6 p.m. this evening. That's a nice thing for them to look forward to. And if they've got carers that are popping in, you know, it gives them something to say, oh, my granddaughter's going to be ringing me later. So that, that's a really key thing, I think, to do is to let people know that you're going to be calling them. So they've got something yeah, to look forward to. Yeah, that's lovely. I think that's right. I've been looking forward to doing Romaniacs all day so far. So I Me too. That. <laughs> we have a returning guest this week, a pro-Romain gun for hire. He founded Scientists for EU, an NHS for a people's <laughs> vote, and is currently a visiting researcher at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. So he knows his panic bought onions when it comes to both Brexit and infectious diseases. Dr. Mike Galsworthy joins us down the line. Mike, welcome. Hi there, how are you doing? <laughs> how, having committed yourself to fighting Brexit for almost four years, how does it feel now to suddenly and dramatically have a new challenge? Uh, well, immediately after the general election, um, I felt very deflated like many people did. It's, what do you do now? And um, there's lots been lots of restructuring in, in the uh, community as to how we sort of pick ourselves up and think about what are the new challenges. And then lo and behold, a really big challenge just goes and lands on our plate. And all of the science issues and health issues that I've been talking about um, have sort of come back in a new flavor with this coronavirus. And um, it looks like the government has actually messed it up now. It, it wasn't that clear at the beginning. There were people with suspicions, but now it's become a lot clearer that, that um, uh, there have been certain things done that were that were arrogant, shall we say, and that, that got the government in hot water. And I can only hope that the social distancing now that we're all trying so hard to put into place buys more time in order for our NHS to be getting the ventilators it needs and the personal protective equipment that all of the frontline staff from the paramedics to the nurses to the doctors to everyone working in those environments needs. So yeah, it's worrying. Yep. One one of the things, isn't it, that is that we dropped out of the EU's bulk buying mechanism for vaccines and medicines. And what, what does that mean for our ability to fight the virus? Well, we seem to maybe be dropping out of the surveillance and dropping out of the bulk buying. I know at the moment the Commission are looking at uh, an emergency sort of count and redistribute of all the vital equipment needed. Um, I've heard conflicting information about whether the UK will be part of that or not. Um, but in the bigger picture, um, this challenge is a global challenge it's an international challenge and it is not helped by people trying to be clever and operate in isolation so when for example donald trump announces that there will be no more uh, travel from europe without notifying the european partners and then crashes the stock markets and then tries to have that plug back up with over a trillion dollars that doesn't help when he tries to poach german scientists to develop cures just for developed vaccines, just for the USA. That doesn't help. And when our own government um, decides that its um, plans for mitigation are far, far cleverer than the advice that it's getting from other countries who've lived through experiences and the WHO, which have expertise in this area, and then find out later that their models have got wrong, that doesn't help. So it, it brings us back to the fundamental concepts of... Um, 
you really don't want to be cutting yourself off and and acting in in superior and presumptuous ways with with systems like science and with systems like help health we're all in it together we're meant to be working together and when we do genuinely and humbly work together and share information and share resources that's how we maximize benefit for everyone absolutely this week we'll have the latest updates on the outbreak and how it will affect the brexit negotiations okay it's not the most important issue but the clue is in the name of the podcast and mike will tell us whether the cummings johnson government really is the science-led technocracy that don wants us to think it is plus tips on fighting coronavirus cabin fever or how to take your mind off those arranged marriages that andrew lillico has warned us about (laughs) that's after a quick announcement from naomi sadly this will come as little surprise we're having to postpone our romaniacs versus the bunker live show for a few months and we can't even sit it out in the winchester until all this blows over We're currently talking to our brilliant friends at the Leicester Square Theatre about a new date and we'll be announcing it as soon as we can. Many thanks to all of you who have bought tickets. We're really sorry not to be able to do the show, but now of all times, we're sure that you do understand. When theatres reopen, places like Leicester Square Theatre will need support from all of us, so do please watch this space. In the meantime, we know that leaves a lot of people with a hole in their diary Thursday the 2nd of April so we are looking at putting on a special live stream for that evening accessible to everyone. Think of it like those lovely Italian people singing out of the window except this time with Ian Dunt swearing his head off. Thanks for having me. Now, after placing all his chlorine-washed eggs in the Brexit basket during the general election, Boris Johnson and his government will now find its tenure defined by a completely different crisis entirely, coronavirus. On Monday, the Prime Minister announced yet more measures against the spread of COVID-19, asking the public to avoid all non-essential travel and warning that the UK is three weeks behind Italy, the worst-hit country in Europe. Only a few days before Johnson's speech, it was predicted that the strategy they put in place could have resulted in a quarter of a million deaths. Mike, there are people whose only job it is to prepare for pandemics like this. How could it have taken them so long to change course? It is quite strange, um, especially given the fact that this particular model underestimated the proportion of people that would have to go into intensive care unit by about half. And it was presented by Laura Koonsberg and others as the science has shifted, whereas actually the true rate for the number of people needing to go into ICU um, already appeared in the Lancet on January the 24th, you know, about 32%. It was documented there. So why the hell was the model still lower? One of the problems is, is that despite our government crowing about the fact that we are science-led and so forth and so on, they missed a very key ingredient of uh, being science-led, and that is having the model open to peer review. There were lots of other epidemiology teams and other scientists around the UK who were saying, the strategy you're pursuing will... uh, Sounds interesting, a little bit alarming, but let us see the workings. And from my inquiries around people that know, it looks like that model really wasn't opened up for other groups to have a look at. And I think if other groups had a look at it, it would have been, that particular error would have been caught in time. 
Um, so there is also um, an element of arrogance woven into here because um, the WHO uh, expressed sort of incredulity at the UK's model also quite early on. Um, and it was largely battered back from our government as kind of like, well, other countries can follow their own measures, but we're following the science. And so I think um, um, that that too is a concern. But look, it's it's a complicated environment. You know, no models are going to get things absolutely right. You have to adapt as you find things. And there are tons of parameters that go into an ever-changing system with different capacities. This is what we're all juggling. Um, but that's also a reason why you don't engage in high-risk activities without at least having it thoroughly checked by everyone on hand first. What's the best case scenario in terms of how long a lockdown could last and when a vaccine could be developed? Because I saw some reports that uh, it might even be virtually impossible to develop a vaccine for coronavirus as a, because it's not a normal flu. What are your thoughts right. on that? Right. Well, I mean, this is a very difficult one. I mean, coronaviruses already circulate in the human population. About uh, 20, 30% of common colds are down to human coronaviruses that don't do too much harm. Um, but then you've also got coronaviruses like SARS and MERS that have crossed over from animals. This particular one seems to have come from bats and pangolids, of all things. Um, and so it's very hard to predict whether it is something that is going to sort of um, die out with a strong immunity against it or it's going to change a bit and sort of stay in circulation. It's hard to know whether it's going to be seasonal or not. With regard to a vaccine, standardly you'd expect uh, 12 months to 18 months for a vaccine development when you're throwing everything in. Interestingly, um, there are already vaccines being tested. So, I mean, the, the rapidity of, of the response is absolutely breathtaking. I remember when uh, COVID-19 was first characterized in January by a whole battery of rapid speed um uh, scientific publications characterizing it genetically, characterizing its origins. So, I mean, you would expect usually a year or maybe one and a half years, but I, I kind of have a little hope inside me that, that with a global ramped up effort, we might see something quite surprising and hopefully get it down um, under one year in terms of actually having something that can then be mass produced and, and put um, uh, out and about internationally. Well, that's a bit more encouraging, isn't it? Naomi, what did you make of Johnson's top team to beat Corona that contained no doctors and no women, but did have Dominic Raab in it? I mean, <laughs> I think it is probably worth saying that, that this <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Dominic Raab didn't, like didn't know the importance of Dover. Um, okay. They've not had a good crisis. Um, I think were this a Remain-led government, um, they would not be getting such an easy ride. Um, they, you know, the government has had to do this pretty enormous about turn from being effectively a pro-infection government uh, to one that is is now much more um, serious about uh, making sure that we all stay home and, and minimising the spread. Um, and it kind of reminds me of you know all of that invoking of Churchill. Uh, that, that Johnson did during the election campaign in particular, but frankly, his entire life. Um, and now, you know, this this 
uh, invisible enemy that we are at war with. He he finally sort of get gets that war and actually you know hasn't hasn't shown great leadership. However, on the on the specifics of the top team that you asked me about. Um, it's a cabinet task force. It's designed to make sure that each vital area of government is COVID-19 resilient. Um, and I'm, I'm not too worked up about there not being a, a scientist in this so-called top team because they are very obviously taking advice from scientific and medical experts such as uh, Witty and Valance. Now, yesterday in our sister podcast, The Bunker, we talked quite, quite a little length about the idea of a universal basic income and maybe its its time had come. Mm. Even Tories now are talking about the um, possible need for a temporary universal basic income. Boris Johnson didn't rule it out today. What do you think are the chances that might happen? Um, I mean, look, it, 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 they, they have had a, a, a huge about turn since the um, budget last week. Um, it, quite phenomenal in terms of the actual numbers on it. Um, we're now looking at spending around 15% of, of GDP on this, um, which is similar to Germany and, and even ahead of Macron's big rollout uh, earlier in the week before Rishi Sunak's. Um, and so from, from that perspective, I think this is, this is the level of budget that I'd really hoped for and expected a week before. So I'm very, very pleased that it's come. Um, Will UBI happen? I mean, it, it's sounding much more like it's to do with giving people loans rather than, you know, putting actual cash into the hands of each household as some other countries have done. Yep, absolutely. Um, and, and that really is a marked difference. Um, and, and, you know, people are very, very averse to debt, uh, particularly, you know, those that are still struggling with um, uh, the effects of the 2008 financial crisis. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that they are going to come forward with more things. Uh, the opposition have been very strident on saying, you know, there was nothing in this for renters um, and other disadvantaged groups, people on zero hours contracts, etc. So um, I do expect that the government will probably aim to plug some of that um, in, in the next update that it does. Um, uh, and, you know, I think... It, <laughs> Advising people not to attend pubs and clubs and theatres obviously caused an outcry. People then felt that they weren't able to claim insurance and probably weren't able to. Um, some people have sort of suggested that this is a bit of fumbling. I think much more than that, the government is just struggling to communicate the support that they're giving. Um, Leo Varadkar, the Taoiseach of Ireland last night, did an absolutely barnstorming uh, speech from a podium that was so, so, so empathetic and full of great advice for people of different generations, people working in different industries that you know we really haven't heard anything um, on the, the the delivery level of that from anyone in our government, um, least of all the Prime Minister. But the situation's changing rapidly, you know, I think I think going from twelve billion to thirty times that being earmarked to help this this week is is obviously a very, very big step in the right direction. Can I interject with something? Um I wrote a piece for The Guardian six years ago now, and it had to do with the big uh, floods in Somerset back then. And what I, what I was saying in it was that um, conservative governments, which are very free market-led, struggle to adjust to crises like this because their 
entire reflex is to shrink the state, to get out of the way, to let the market, to let the invisible hand um, handle it all. So when something happens um, that requires an intervention, they don't make the ideological um, adjustment quickly enough, and so they end up being behind the curve and they end up being reactive. And that, I think, is a, is a wider conversation that we need to have after all this has died down, which is, you know, if you keep electing people whose explicit aim is to atrophy the state, you can't then be surprised when the state lacks the musculature to spring into action when you, when you need it. Mm. Naomi, uh, you've been campaigning quite hard for the Brexit transition period to be extended. Where are we on that? Do you think it will happen? Ooh. <laughs> well, yesterday, um, so on Tuesday of this week, um, Peter Foster at The Telegraph, friend of the podcast, um, put out a piece in The Telegraph um, suggesting that absolutely our government was uh, almost certainly going to have to um, request an extension. And then we've seen multiple um, messages coming out of number 10 and others uh, walking back from that and saying, obviously, no such thing at all. But I really think it only seems like it's a, a matter of time before it happens. Um, we are, as I said, at war with an invisible enemy. Um, we simply cannot fight on two different fronts. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, 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 heartening that they're that they're they're thinking about it i think we all um need to write to our mps and let them know that they would have our support um were they to back the government in doing this it's just simply not reasonable to expect a government to have negotiations tied up with the eu by the end of the year while dealing with what is a warlike emergency that none of us in our lifetimes have had to come anywhere close to dealing with um and um you know, especially when we know that the average EU trade deal takes, on average, about a decade to negotiate. So it's not reasonable, but it's certainly not desirable. Um, most people want the government to focus on this current crisis that's right in front of them and, and don't want to set the government up for failure with no time to negotiate or space to manoeuvre. Um, uh, because, uh, the, the, you know, then we'd be in a situation where we were definitely um, headed for a very bad deal or no deal whatsoever. And at Best for Britain, we'd been looking at the contingency plans of lots of local authorities over the last uh, three years in real detail. And they've been saying to us that they are confident that they could weather the impact of a, a hard Brexit. So not flourish under it, not, you know, emerge triumphant into some uplands, but they could weather that. But they feared a double whammy. And that was what came through incredibly clearly. They could cope with one thing, not two. We now face that reality, just that. And I really worry that they won't be able to sustain all the vital services we rely on if they're having to do both. I think the government does know that. We've seen them have to release all of the vital PPE that had been ring-fenced for health and safety in the event of no-deal Brexit to now deal with coronavirus, I, I hope and expect that it's only a matter of time before the government does seek that extension. But I would encourage all listeners to write to their MP and say, if you back the government on this, you've got my support. Could I inter interject a little thing um, in there, which is I'm hoping that going through this whole experience at the moment will be very 
sobering uh, for a lot of people. And like Nomi just mentioned, it is almost like a wartime environment. And if you think about the post-war environment, um, Churchill was rejected then and people wanted Attlee. People wanted to build the NHS and the welfare state. People wanted to build the United Nations and the precursors of the European Union. So jingoism, I'm, I'm hoping, will by that stage be quite sort of deflated um, and with clearly the main drive that, that people will be seeing as, as, as the national uh, sort of urgency and necessity, which is how do we take care of each other? And how do we work with other people around the world in order to make sure that we are all safer and we're all stronger and we're working well together? And so um, I, I think now the the war analogies might not be too um too wrong and we should look to the positives that came from that as maybe a model for the tone of how the country should be or should transition into um, at this point. The backdrop to the government's corona response and its wider policy direction is its strange relationship with science. While Boris Johnson's public disdain for girly swats and experts is infamous, his administration is under the sway of self-styled alpha geek Dominic Cummings, who writes word salad blogs littered with references to artificial intelligence and causality theory. And earlier this year, advertised for super-talented weirdos, wildcards and unusual mathematicians, whatever they are, to work in number 10. Last month, Cummings got 800 million pumped into a new Blue Sky Science Unit, a British DARPA, they're calling it, after the Defence Advanced Research Projects Agency, the American institution that gave us GPS, cloud computing and ARPANET, ancestor of the internet. Are we living in a technocracy without knowing it? Are Cummings' plans equal to the task of levelling up neglected Britain? And is it up to dealing with coronavirus? You've already heard our special guest, Mike Goresworthy, founder of Scientists for EU. Mike, Cummings' friend Steve Sue told the Times Higher Education Supplement that Dom's dream is for the UK to become a global leader in scientific research and education, as well as the Silicon Valley of Europe. How is he going about that, and is he going about it the right way? Well, the UK already was. I mean, the UK was already leading in science globally in terms of, um, for example, money into high-value publications out. And because of the EU science program, which is world leading, and us sitting on top of that in a very commanding and driving role, uh, we really were an extremely privileged place, even though our own government's funding of science was at the bottom of the G8, um, if you're looking back to 2015, 2016, uh, and then into early 2017. So um, I obviously uh, applaud the the ambition to make the UK more of a science nation. The question is how you go about it. In fact, I, I'll note at this stage that the vote leaves um, motto, even there still on its Twitter handle, is... Um, uh, take back control, invest in science and the NHS. And so um, 
but they didn't pursue science heavily because as scientists for EU, we got out of the traps really early on, and it became very apparent that about 90% of the science community was passionately pro-EU. So uh, we beat Dominic Cummings on that one. Um, but now that he is back in power, um, he is interested in boosting UK science, but he's got his own very selfish flavour on it. So it's a mixed bag. For a start, Brexit itself has already hurt British science. The Royal Society published findings back in October 2019 that in terms of our applications to the EU science programme, they were down by 40%. They'd been dropping over the years. Um, in terms of uh, EU scientists coming to the UK, that had been cut by a third. So that was hurting. We'd lost the European Medicines Agency. Um, we have lost our place in Galileo. And um, the impact on our science reputation, you know, has been significant. But at the same time, if you read Dom's blogs, he appreciates that there are lots of different areas of science that need to be funded, like small teams as well as the big teams. He appreciates that a lot of um, uh, postdocs are swamped by grant applications that don't come through, and that needs to be streamlined. So he's got lots of creative ideas, but at the same time, he's got lots of antagonisms, shall we say, that actually get in the way of science doing well. I even heard that in December, uh, Dom had the idea that we should be leaving the European Space Agency and uh, pairing up with Elon Musk instead. And so then this required a delegation of people to go and visit Boris Johnson to say, no, that is madness. Um, we are a leading force in the European uh, Space Agency. Don't even contemplate this. So this, this is the kind of uh, sort of will for science. You know, the man clearly loves science, but at the same time, he's hurting the thing that he loves. And we've heard relatively little about Cummings since the start of the coronavirus crisis, which in some ways, you know, is obviously a relief. Um, <laughs> mixed, but, but how far do you think he's determining policy for coronavirus behind the scenes? Do you detect his fingerprints on it? Uh, or as someone wrote about Newton, you can you can see the work of the lion by his paw print. Uh, the attitude of the government um, has been very much a la dom, um, in that it's talking about putting science at the front and centre of its policy, um, but it's also arrogant like that in saying in, in implying that we are more sciency than other nations, for example, or even the WHO, we are guided by science, not by populism or not by, you know, reactionary actions. Um, and and that is in itself is a problem because science by nature is not, I'm more sciencey than you. It's rather about what is all the data available. Let's all look at it together and all come to a consensus about what's the most sensible interpretations. And uh, this this brings us back to the fact that the modelling was done by uh, an imperial team that have done modelling for the government before with foot and mouth and CJD and made errors there. And it doesn't look like they were themselves as, as a group that open to peer review. And it doesn't look as though the government was um, pushy enough 
on making sure that that was peer-reviewed and opened up to other epidemiological teams around the UK and also internationally. Um, and I think the error when it came along and was caught too late, you know, on their high-risk strategy um, is hopefully, hopefully humbled the government quite a bit in terms of its chest-beating approach um, about how it is the champion of science. Mike, can I ask you a quick question? Um, sure. It, I think this is the thing that's stressing people out a lot, is w- which scientist to believe, which yeah. advice, which expert. And yes. at the moment, we're still in this situation where our government is not testing people, is not even, as we understand it, as of today, testing frontline services, um, yeah. health workers who, who are displaying symptoms, yeah. whereas that's the WHO... That's a capacity limit, and they're not admitting it. That's that's the problem. They have to be, come clean like that, 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 whereas South Korea has developed fantastic capacity to do this, uh, we don't have the same capacity, and we haven't admitted that we haven't. Um, and we should have been talking to the WHO about this. I mean, the WHO certainly offered the US government testing kits that were German made. And Donald Trump said, no, we'd rather develop our own. And they tried to do that. And there were flaws with them. So, yeah. Yeah. So so what's your advice to people? You know, would, would you are you telling people actually take WHO advice over government advice, uh, UK government advice? Or how, how, how should people um, chart that course through through the conflicting advice? It's it's tricky um, because when I started out explaining the government strategy, I more wanted to make sure that everyone was understanding the complexity which our government and all governments face in trying to determine what to do. You know, draconian measures have big costs, but not doing them might also have big costs. Um, And so you don't want to go too hard on on you know panning your government especially when you've got standing next to Boris Johnson you know the chief medical officer and chief science advisor uh, standing there and you and you don't want within the ranks of scientists for it all to become a free for all that's not usually how we behave and we usually sit down and hang together and come to group agreement so i think there's been within our country quite a mismanagement of how that's all been corralled because scientists also have a duty to to speak up and ask questions. So who to trust more, the WHO or your own government, is a difficult one. And I think that we should all be putting the pressure on for transparency, for dialogue, and for a cohesion of you know approach being you know championed by both of them i i personally would want to see a lot more testing because not only does it improve your modeling you 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 can just do the modeling by those that come into hospital and then you back extrapolate according to you know the demographics and what have you and so forth into the into the postcodes into the constituencies but for people who've just had it or think they've just had it how do they know they've had it? And then certainly uh, for the frontline staff that have to um, deal with so much exposure, I think it's, uh, you know, 
I don't want to say criminal. I think it's a really urgent priority that those frontline staff, from the paramedics to the nurses, to the doctors, to the cleaners, to everyone that works in that environment and are putting themselves at risk because we saw that 47-year-old young, healthy paramedic in Italy actually die from COVID-19. It is dead important that we protect them, providing them with the protective equipment, providing them with regular testing. I mean, we don't want to send our soldiers into war with with inadequate body armor we should certainly not be sending our our, um, Mm -hmm. nurses and paramedics into harm's way without the fullest protection we can give them thank you thinking about this new research unit that Cummings has set up um what areas will it be tackling because we hear stuff about high risk high impact breakthroughs in areas like energy science and other fundamental areas such as quantum information and computing um, what will it really be focusing on? And did being in the EU stop us from doing any of that anyway? Answer to the second one, no, of course not. Answer to the first, um, to quote a government science advisor, and there are plenty of them, um, no one has an effing clue yet. Um, and here's, here's the thing. After the uh, 2016 referendum, I, I sat down with Dominic Cummings and I had a coffee with him and discussed, you know, science and the fact that, you know, there was damage looming on the horizon. And he said Boris Johnson was worried by this and so afforded him some ideas um, of what you could do to mitigate it. And in that coffee meeting, he was saying, do you know what we need? We need a citizen's ARPA in the UK. And he was you know, insistent on that. So when I saw it pop up in the um, uh, Conservative uh, election manifesto, I thought, oh, God, the science section here is not designed by going out to the community, asking what's really needed, especially when we've just rebuilt our science infrastructure in the country in terms of having set up um, UKRI, UK Research and Innovation, which has brought together a lot of the disparate funding bodies. You know, what I, I thought as soon as I saw that ARPA thing, this is Dominic Cummings' personal wheeze drag and dropped in here and is going to have a big budget for it. And that's what other science policy people I've spoken to say as well. They say, I've never seen anything like it. You know, a guy could come in and, you know, off, off the that of his, you know, own whims, you get to spend 800 million on developing something that is as yet undefined. And you've even got uh, other science policy people that have been pulled in to sit down at a table with Dom and help him sort of craft it up. But I don't know how it's going to shape up. I do know that, that others have said, and I agree, that the real things that, that, that DARPA achieved early on in the US back in the 60s and 70s was part of that big national effort, part of that military industrial complex, which poured a whole load of government money into a lot of the early uh, technology development, which then later bloomed into resources and and, uh, companies and so forth and so on. Whereas the big challenges that we face now are actually global and international. And... um, what we really need to be thinking about is how we embed our solid leadership role and capacities within those multinational and international frameworks. Um, So I don't know what specifically he intends to fund. I presume there will be strong efforts on on, uh, 
energy and on artificial intelligence, that's where I would guess it would go, and particularly the latter overlapping with you know our NHS data. That would actually be a very, very good thing if he were to take that route, because the risk we have with our NHS is that if we need algorithms on it, if we ship our data to US tech companies and they develop algorithms that process our data, they get patents on those, and then we kind of have to buy them back from the US so that our NHS is held hostage to uh, private company processing on foreign shores, that would be bad news. Um, so if it is the latter, then then I hope so. But what worries me is that it might get all designed by his personal whims and, and wheezes rather than it actually going back out to the science community uh, with the ask, what is really needed here in terms of areas to cover, in terms of type of funding, um, in terms of mechanisms and in terms of how this weaves in with the rest of the UK landscape as it is now looking at the challenges that we have on now. Mike, as well as all of your um, amazing work around the NHS and scientists, you've also been pretty active with the um, pro-European grassroots groups across the country. Um, what, what's the latest with all of them? Right, okay. Um, thank you for asking me that, Naomi. Yes, Um what what we did during 2019 from our sort of social media intelligence unit was to help grow a lot of the grassroots Facebook pages from about 100,000 followers combined um, to over 600,000. So by the time we got to December the 13th, you know, the, the day after the election, they're on 608,000. But now they've continued to grow organically past 630,000. So there's a lot of growth still going on um, in the online presences of a lot of these local groups around the country. And I know a lot of them have had meetings um, since the general election that have been better attended than anything before. So they're, they're probably shutting down those physical meetings now. But there's a lot of local groups and activists out there that still want to be campaigning. So what we've done, myself and, and Tom Brafato, is back in um, 2019 in the summer, we launched March for Change, which was within the, the, the fold of the People's Vote campaign, trying to generate a new sort of flanking surge, which was more about um, the Remain narrative um, and more about grassroots being empowered to, to lead on that and hoping to develop, you know, narratives that actually uh, worked locally. So March for Change produced, you know, some of those big marches and also with Best for Britain, you know, the, the prorogation protests and mobilizing people then. So we've been rebuilding in order to, with March for Change, mobilize again. But specifically, our first mission is on the US-UK trade deal. Um, and uh, the the threats that that brings with regard to the NHS, with regard to animal welfare and animal cruelty and, and food standards and so forth and so on. And actually, it really is quite pertinent now in this current coronavirus environment that we think about um, global quality of food and quality of, of uh, uh, farm uh, animal welfare. I mean, this virus came out of um, the, the the Wuhan sort of markets, and there have been viruses that come have come out of animals before through poor 
conditions. And, and in the States, you do have a lot of mega farms where the uh, conditions the animals kept in are lower. Uh, the US uses a lot more antibiotics on farm animals than we do. And that is dangerous because beyond viruses, there's also the threat of um, um, uh, resistant bacteria. So I think now is the right time to have sort of conversations of if we are rebuilding how we look at the country, how we look at the economy, how we look at our relationships going forward, then we don't want a lot of elements that a, a pushed, rushed UK-US trade deal may well bring in. And if we look at how we want to build going forward, then we don't, we want to protect our NHS and we want to keep um, also our standards much closer to European standards. So even though people can't really go out um, handing out flyers, nevertheless, um, we still should be campaigning around those fundamental issues throughout the summer because if we don't get all these extensions and we do get bounced into a UK-US trade deal and bounced into a hard Brexit, then the country could be bounced into a place that we really don't want. And I think now is actually a good time for um, March for Change to come back and, and start pushing those issues. Now for our segment, To the Barricades, where one of our regulars offers a cause for Romaniacs listeners to get behind this week. And boy, there's a lot of them now. This week, it's Alex's turn. Alex, what have you got for us? Um, I, I should be intimidated following all that science, um, but I'm not because I'm a scientist in the kitchen. Um, so to the barricades today, um, what I will offer are some thrifty kitchen tips. Um, as Scarcity becomes a reality, both because of shortages and because of financial hardship. Now is the time. It's the perfect time for us to learn to waste a lot less food um, because we will have a lot of time on our hands as well. So it's really quite useful. And because it's something we all have to learn how to do if we're going to protect the planet. Um, the wasteful may survive but only the frugal will thrive so throw nothing away be really mindful of what you waste except i have to say ian dunce um doritas lasagna for which the only proper place is the bin um wash everything before you prep it because it's easier to wash a carrot than it is to wash carrot peel, okay so it's waste is usable. Keep little freezer bags. I, I always have three freezer bags on the go, one with carrot peel, carrot top, uh, you know, onion tops, uh, the bits of the leek you discard, the, the stalks from the herbs that you don't put in the actual dish, and then keep a second bag for any meat offcuts or carcasses or bones. Um, and I keep a third one for seafood, um, you know, fish, skin, uh, offcuts, uh, shells of prawns, all of that stuff. All of this makes absolutely brilliant stock, and I have those on the go the whole time. So um, everything is usable. 
almost everything that we now throw away is actually usable, indeed delicious. Stale bread you can blitz into breadcrumbs and put those in the freezer. Soured milk is the most fantastic marinade for any kind of proper um, protein because the acid, the lactic acid, really breaks down the protein. Also, loads of American recipes use it in cakes and pancakes and things like that. Whenever they call for buttermilk, it's basically milk that's gone slightly sour. Um, potato peel makes fantastic oven chips. Uh, fruit peel makes jams and um, chutneys. Um, you can flavor oil with stuff you throw away, like the top and tail of garlic. If you throw it in some oil before you start frying the thing you're going, you're going to start frying, it flavors the, the oil. Potato water, pasta water, um, it's so rich in starch. I always keep liquid a tub gold. of it. I, I keep a tub of it in the fridge because you, you drop a cup into any sauce and it thickens it. You have to learn to extend food. Whenever you're going to make something with a very thick sauce, Throw some water in there and instead some starch, a bit of pasta, a bit of rice. That will make the, the meal go further. And let nothing go off. Before anything goes off, you have the chance to cook it, which will give you an extra few days in the fridge, or freeze it. So let nothing go to waste. I've recently started making my own sourdough starter. It's like having a little pet. Um, so you can, you know, you have the the huge resource of uh, a social media community and YouTube videos and all of that. So anytime you, you're about to throw something away, just do a little search and say, what can I do with carrot peel? And I guarantee you, you will find five delicious, fantastic things that you can do with it. You and can make really lovely crisps out of potatoes. They're, they're fantastic. Potato yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I much prefer your version of survivalism than buying up on toilet paper and guns. <laughs> Finally, how's your isolation week going? If anyone is mentally prepared for a seemingly endless stretch of hardship, lockdown and endless chickpea curries, it's Remainers. We've been ready for this ever since 2017. And it's good to know the contents of everyone's <laughs> no-deal Brexit emergency cupboards are finally getting some news. <laughs> Who knew that tin sardines could last so long? The experience has been hugely varied. Freelance types and daytime Twitter people hardly noticed a difference. Office workers reported cabin fever by 3pm. And for millions of people in jobs out in the real world or in precarious occupations, the option of working from home just doesn't exist. We asked our Twitter followers how they were coping. The Reverend Slicker said, you have to be kidding me. I've had one and a half days with a civil servant. I've never been so hydrated in my life. Offers of tea every 15 minutes. How can anyone drink so much tea? <laughs> Michael Gill said, it's shit, as trying to close a business isn't my idea of a holiday. I just hope we take a political retribution on these morons who have cost people their lives and livelihoods. And Stevie P said, I'm afraid the coronavirus has taken second place today to adjusting the ball valve in the loft tank. Mike, have you been working from home? How's it, how's it gone? 
Uh, I usually work from home anyway, so for me, it's just a continuation of, uh, of daily life. But um, no, it's it's the contact with with family um, that, that bothers me. Um, so I'm in discussion with my parents and um, other members of my family about when and how we should meet up. And uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's the more sobering end of it. Naomi, do you think this is likely to change the way we work permanently? But when the emergency is over, is the three or four day week going to become the norm? Yes, and I, I hope so. Um, you know, all the evidence shows that the most productive economies are those that have shorter working weeks. And certainly I've seen from our own team this week, absolute phenomenal levels of productivity. Now, would we have had that if we hadn't all known each other beforehand and worked in close quarters with each other beforehand maybe not so I I think um, onboarding new team members in this kind of environment would be very challenging but um, I I think that this virus if nothing else is going to change our lives forever uh, in terms of how we organize how we operate um, and I think that probably is for the best Um, I would just say, though, while freelancers, of course, are very used to to often working from home or or remotely and things like that, they are also amongst some of the most um, financially precarious now. Um, And so, you know, big love out there to everyone um, facing uncertainty about the future of their job, whether they are, you know, somebody who is not office based and and maybe is in retail and hospitality or or whether they're a freelancer. Um, And, you know, really hope that the government budget comes through for you. Alex, do you think we'll get new societal norms from this after the deep divisions of the Brexit years? I hope so. Um, I I think people are beginning to switch their thinking. Um, Experts have become quite rehabilitated in the last couple of weeks. Um, and, And people are beginning to wonder if everyone agrees that statutory sick pay is not enough to live on, if everyone agrees that um, universal credit is not enough to live on, um, for someone, you know, who was knocked down on their bike because they're a courier, then why aren't we as generous and as civilized to them in non-crisis times? Um, and, and I've seen that feeling expressed many, many times over the last few weeks. Yeah, I've been noticing this week, I've been shocked by having joined a WhatsApp uh, group in our road. And I have just realized that there was someone called Ellen living next door. And I had no idea. I had loads of people in my road who I don't exist. <laughs> I was totally unaware. And it's been uh, quite mortifying in some ways. What are, what are our tips for making enforced working from home bearable, though, with or, with or without kids? I mean, we've heard about not sitting at the computer in your pyjamas. Is there anything else that uh, our panel this week have to pass on? For me, um, I always find that when I want to make phone calls, get out of the house and just go walking down the road, go to the local park, get, you know, it's, it's, um, you've got to get away from the computer. You've got to get out of the house and making a phone call. And while you're doing it is just for me, a natural way to do that. Um, my tip would probably be around not, um, just because you've got easy access to the kitchen and you are now incredibly hungry because you've just listened to Alex talk so <laughs> deliciously about food and do try to avoid, uh, you know, just that continual snacking throughout the day. Yeah, I'm a snacker. Um, yeah, yeah, it's terrible. You, you, yeah. Can, you can eat 
easily easily put on a couple of stone in a in a couple of months lockdown if you're constantly going to the kitchen all the time. So I'm definitely trying to get out, get exercise, and not graze continually just because I've got the kitchen there. And count your coffees. Ah, I hadn't thought of that. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, I um, I have a similarly uh, self restrained Lentish suggestion which is uh, I limit myself to two hours of news a day one hour in the morning and one hour in the evening because you know during this crisis it's good to be informed but I think if you're at home the temptation is just to have the rolling news on in the background the whole time which just will make you crazy. Many of us have elderly relatives who've been told to self-isolate very soon. Hell, some of us will be those elderly relatives, and some of them have been reluctant. One of Ian Dunt's followers on Twitter told him, In a bid to stop my father-in-law, a cancer patient, from walking to the shops each day, I just paid for a six-month online subscription to the Daily Fucking Telegraph. That's how seriously (laughs) I take it. Oh, poor guy. Yeah, I congratulate them on that big... Yeah, gesture. That's incredible. We've reached the end of the show, which means it's time for the Brexit bridge. In a time where borders are closing and connections between countries are becoming increasingly limited, we're building a metaphorical bridge back into the EU, where every brick represents a value we want to carry with us. Mike Galsworthy, here's your hard hat and hazmat suit. What's your choice? Oh, God, I would lower down the whole drawbridge of science collaboration and open it up more. Um, but if I had to pick a, a small brick, I, I don't know. I, I just think that we should be um, picking different aspects of the ways of life on the continent that we cherish here in terms of transportation, food, green energy, whatever, and regularly dropping those into uh, conversations here in order to start uh, talking about that that greener grass that we want to stay connected with. Thanks, Mike. And that's the end of the show. Thanks to Mike Goldsworthy, Naomi Smith and Alex Andreu for joining us from faraway places. We'll be in cyberspace again next week with another remotely recorded edition of Romaniacs. No matter what happens with the virus, we'll keep on podcasting and so will our little sibling podcast, The Bunker. Now for our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. Get their new album, England is a Garden, from ampleplay.co.uk now. We're all on lockdown, so there's no excuse. And here are the latest thanks to our latest Patreon backers. Hello from me to Beth Neal, Sidara, Anna Karen Rask, Sasha Nyrak, Cara Burnett, Mena Lloyd, Chris Rainbow and Caroline Herring. Kalimera and big thanks from me to Liam Holman, Tim Foster, Bashira Khan, Valeria Martinelli, M. Reitz, Alison Carter, David Amstel and Amanda Powling. And finally, hello from me to Catherine Kavanagh, Gary Frank, Andrew Davidson, Nick Coulter, Olivia Fox, Toria Richards, Sitai and Richard Blakesley. Romaniacs was presented in self-isolation by Ros Taylor with Alexandreou and Naomi Smith. Audio production and scripting was by me, Alex Reese, 
The producer is Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer is Jacob Archibald. And Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Thank you.